Hello, and welcome to my office. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and this is Beyond the Prescription, the show where I talk with my guests like I do my patients, pulling the curtain back on what it means to be healthy, redefining health as more than the absence of disease. As a primary care doctor for over 20 years, I've realized that patients are much more than their cholesterol and their weight. Our stories live in our bodies. I'm here to help people tell their story and for you to imagine and potentially get healthier from the inside out. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter at lucymcbride.com slash newsletter and to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. Today's guest is as stylish as she is fearless and talented. Please welcome the amazing Tashira Halyard. Tashira is an attorney, equity consultant, and the mastermind between the Instagram account Politics and Fashion, where I first met her and was immediately obsessed. She is also a third-generation breast cancer survivor whose battle with the illness pushed her to prioritize her health, her well-being, to leave a toxic relationship with her job, and to honor her unique, multi-hyphenate personality. Tashira, there are so many things I want to talk to you about today. Your career as a lawyer, your social entrepreneurialism and activism, your podcast, this new podcast you have with your friend Margo, and perhaps most of all, I want to talk to you about your style, your fashion, your clothing, and how you use that as such an important part of your self-expression. I, like you, have an obsession with clothing and fashion as a way of expressing myself. And people don't think it's often possible to be a professional woman and care that much. So let's start with your story. How did you get to be a lawyer? How did you get to be an activist? Shoot. I think I've always been an activist in some ways, Doc, because, you know, I was raised by a young teenage mother and mm. my grandparents, my, my my maternal grandparents raised me as well as help from my father's parents. I'm very transparent about my story and that my father wasn't a part of my life for the majority of it. He battled with substance abuse disorder. My grandparents were like, this is the one, like she's going to be special. And so I was always kind of fast tracked into these like high performing academic programs. But then I would come home back to my poor, low income community. And so I saw firsthand like this division based upon socioeconomic status and the kinds of opportunities I began to receive that my friends that I was playing with every day did not. And so by the time I was in college, I was 19 years old. I come home from college my freshman year that summer and I see the Klan marching down the main street of my small hometown. And so I think I really, having grandparents raised in the Jim Crow South, I never really had a choice. I feel like I was someone who once again was kind of positioned between the haves and the have-nots. And so my worldview started very young to say, why do these people get the things and these people don't? And the people who look like me are the ones who are denied the opportunities. And so becoming a lawyer is something that I said I wanted to do when I was very, very young. And honestly, my grandparents just never let me forget it. I got my law degree and I just gave it to them, girl. I was like, you can have it. (laughs) Check. (laughs) They must have been so proud of you. You basically gave it to your grandparents. I gave it to my grandparents because I was like, I didn't need it. 
I wanted and I still do to make them proud given their sacrifices and what they came from. My grandfather was a false fate miner for 40 years. My grandmother was a domestic worker. So you talk a bit about style and how I show up in the world. It really comes from her and all of her sisters and that generation of women who were doing these kind of menial tasks and menial labor that some may consider, but always showed up in the world very refined, dynamic Sunday church with the hat and the suit and the matching handbag, right? And so they had such a profound influence on my life until I thought to myself, what could I give them to make their sacrifice worth it? And for me, it was holding true, remaining steadfast to my law degree. Then obviously as well, understanding that for a girl like me who comes from the background that I come from, that I had to have those extra credentials behind my name. And for me, that looked like becoming an attorney. The pride you describe your grandmother and her friends had showing up at church, looking like dynamite, that was important to them. What does that represent to you? Like when you think about your grandmother and how hard she worked and how much she cared about you and then her presentation. Some people say, oh, that's superficial. That's not relevant to one's worth. But there's meaning there. Absolutely. And I also think that that's the patriarchy talking very often, right? Because these are things that tend to be feminized or, you know, women care about it, so it must be frivolous. And I think for Black women, especially being raised in the way that I was, it's actually an act of resistance. And I call it the politics of adornment. And so we adorn ourselves as a way to demonstrate self-care and to say that I can look good and feel good and smell good and have on my Sunday best, as we say in the South, despite being told by everything in the world that I do not matter. Or as Zora Neale Hurston once said, I am one of the mules of the world, right? And so to see my grandmother and her sisters and also my dad's mom, who's so stylish to this day, she's in a nursing home and still she's like, put my wig on, brush my wig, you know? To see that has always been a reminder that the way that I show up and I present and my love for fashion, it has a root. It comes from somewhere for me culturally. And so even for me as a young community organizer who was like new to the world and social justice, I had all these people around me telling me, you shouldn't care about that. That's not what's important. What's important is these things over here. And that never sat well with me because I saw the ways in which my grandmother resisted by how she showed up in the world, right? By how she adorned herself, as I've said before. I can't bifurcate those things, you know. That's why the platform is called Politics and Fashion. It's about fashion and it's about politics because these two things for me have much more of a symbiotic relationship than we like to give them credit for. And let's just acknowledge, too, that women are capable of many identities. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can walk in stilettos and chew gum at the same time. Period. We can be creative. We can be joyful. We can celebrate ourselves and our worthiness. And be a lawyer, be a doctor, care for our jobs, whatever it may be. I think there is some frivolity in any space you look. I mean, there's waste and frivolity in the practice of medicine. Yeah. It's really about self-respect and about judging ourselves with kindness instead of dismissing our urges to be ourselves. And we're connected in this way, too. As soon as I became unapologetic about my interests and my loves, all these people begin to say, you know what, me too. Me too. Like I have XYZ credential. I check this, that, and the other box. But I also care a lot about how I show up in the world, about fashion, about style, whatever the nuance is to the thing that gives them joy. What I find is that when we are unapologetic about it, we find our tribe. And I'm so grateful for that because I was never alone. (laughs) Well, I think people are attracted to you, not just because of your clothing, but because you do exude confidence and kind of compassion for others and for yourself. And that's just appealing. 
Tell me about how law and social activism in a more formal way happened. So I became an attorney, graduated from Georgetown, and I knew right away that I didn't want to be a litigator. But those were kind of the first jobs that were available to me before I understood what it meant to go into public policy. Now, I should say, backing up a bit, that I often say that like my sociopolitical worldview really became sharpened outside of law school. But during that period, during the time of me becoming a community organizer, honestly. And I was doing that work prior to Mike Brown, Eric Gardner, any of kind of the very heinous acts of anti-Black state-sanctioned violence that we know post-Black Lives Matter movement, right? It was pre-BLM, before really social media, just me and some friends kind of in the trenches hosting political education classes. So I was knee-deep in study, as well as doing things in the community as mutual aid, like community gardens and hosting sister circles and all these things. And so that was the time period that I really began to understand that I could find a way to put my grain of sand on the scale of justice, so to speak, in a way that really was going to speak to who I am. And then when I got the law degree, my goal really was to try to find a way to take that activism outside of law school and make it my professional career. And that was honestly always the goal. I have done things around housing and homeless services. I have done things around the child welfare system, the juvenile justice system. Public systems are really kind of my sweet spot and the ways in which black and brown youths, especially those who identify as girls, are not given the same opportunities and our system involved and honestly come out worse than they were when they came in. However, for me, same kids, same people, different system, different day, white supremacy still reigns supreme. And so I wanted to find a way to really take that litigation kind of that direct practice that I was seeing and do something about it. So career wise, I've always had this dance between direct practice and public policy. And once I hit my public policy work, everything just clicked because it also allowed me to write and research a lot more, which I used to think I wanted to be an academician, believe it or not. But I think now it kind of shows up in the way that I probably like produce YouTube videos because I like to teach. This was the thing I did when I was young. I would sit down all my cousins and like give them homework and I would like play school with them. They hated it. And so I used to think I wanted to be an academician. And now I feel like I've kind of scratched that between my policy work and then the creative work that I do. I heard you talking with Margot, your co-producer of the Just Us podcast, talking about ways in which bit by bit you're chipping away at the white supremacy model that is in the air we breathe in this country. How do you think you make the most difference? Is it talking to one person at a time? Is it through pushing legislation in your community? Is it through your podcast? What is your particular value add in your mind? Writ large, if I was giving advice to someone, I would say it's by doing the thing that you love and doing it with intention and with a justice mindset, right? In one episode, Margo and I talked about how post-Trump and kind of these MAGA Republicans, what she has began to do is really put a lot of power and privilege, honestly, behind local politicians. And I was like, that is fantastic, right? You were in the position to do so. You're able to leverage all of your friends, their resources, your resources to get people elected to local office who can really make a difference. And we see now from the Supreme Court and other federal politicians that really change is going to happen. I believe, within the next generation at the local level. That's what she does. That's what she loves. For me, I think that 
I am a storyteller and that from a spiritual lens, I have been through things and it is my assignment to share them with other people and to then put a voice to those struggles and those experiences in a way that other people will listen to and hopefully decision makers and those who are in power, right? Because I'm able to apply an analysis, a critical race theory to a damn ham sandwich, right? Where did the pork come from? Right? <laughs> when I think about my experiences in childhood, what has meant for me to have gone through sex abuse or to have abortions. All of these things have been racialized. And by telling my story, I can get that point of view out there. Also, I think just being authentic. I think my time organizing was so important. But today, I think what probably I hope is what I do that is providing support to others is through my storytelling and through holding space. That's what I see in you is that your best gift and I haven't known you very long, is just being you. And by being you, other people see what authenticity is and what power people have when they're their authentic selves, mm. where they don't have to cower in fear or hide their true identities or their thoughts, and they can be themselves. I mean, that is tragically something that's so difficult for a lot of human beings, particularly in marginalized communities, just being themselves. Like the fact that that has to be said or that that is a privilege is really, really tragic. What I see is you being a storyteller and you're modeling vulnerability and you're modeling strength in the same sentence and in really good genes. Oh, that is. Can you write that in like a bio somewhere for me? I mean, that's easy <laughs> that to say. Fantastic. I didn't. I mean, I just think that if I can turn it to me for a second, I think that I do a better job counseling patients or talking to my podcast listeners or newsletter readers, not by telling them mm. what to do, not by lecturing or judging, but by showing, by showing people this badass person in front of me. You don't need me to show the world. To you. you're, you're already showing yourself. But or talking about what I've been through, for example, as it may pertain to the person's story and being a real person, too. Mm -hmm. There's so much posturing. There's so much inauthenticity. There's so much fear of being known that I think sometimes we end up walling off ourselves from other people. And then we kind of lose our voice and lose our sense of agency. I'd love to pivot and talk about your breast cancer. You are a third generation breast cancer survivor. I have to stop for a second and say, Many of my patients recoil at the word survivor when they're talked about vis-a-vis -vis their cancer. They didn't choose breast cancer. They don't want to be lumped into a category, and nor do they want people to assume things about them. But you have called yourself a breast cancer survivor and a breast cancer thriver. So I will use that word for a minute, not to assume anything about you. I'd love to actually not assume anything about you and ask you what that was like for you, what that was like to be part of a fabric of a family that had this in their story and what that did for you kind of professionally, personally. Yeah, it changed my life. When I tell this story, I think to myself, does this sound like a Lifetime movie? You know, like I, I don't want to be trite about it because everyone doesn't have the privilege, the educational privilege, socioeconomic privilege, the class privilege to do what I did, which was quit my job and decide to live life on my own terms. Going back, before I got breast cancer, I think probably what's most important is that I'd had a really, really tough time with uterine fibroids for years. And it got to a point where I had to have a hysterectomy. Mm. And so no children hadn't decided whether or not I wanted children biologically. And the doctor is like, we've performed like three procedures on you. At this point, your uterus just cannot be saved. We need to do the hysterectomy. 
I was struggling so much until I was getting blood transfusions. I was getting iron infusions. Like it was just no way that I was going to be able to keep it and to maintain my health. And so get through the hysterectomy. And then while I am recovering from it, my mom visits me and she says, I feel a lump in my left breast. She goes back home. She goes to the doctor. It ends up being cancer. She has HER2 positive cancer. Early stage, but quick to spread. She immediately goes to treatment. Like she went to the doctor and that same day they started chemo. And I was like, oh my God, this is a lot, (laughs) right? At this point, my grandmother had cancer in my early 20s. And so now we are with my mom having the cancer. And right as she's on the tail end of her cancer treatment, and I'm about a year out from the hysterectomy, I feel a lump in my right breast while I'm in the shower. Turns out it is breast cancer. My first thought was, how in the hell am I going to tell my mom I have cancer while she's treating cancer? Like, this is going to just tear my family apart. But people are resilient, and I firmly believe that things exist in your life sometimes to make you stronger and to bring you closer together, and that's exactly what happened. And so I personally went through a lumpectomy, sometimes called a partial mastectomy, which I'm sure many of your listeners know. I then went through four rounds of chemo, although we thought I wasn't going to have to, but my cancer had a pretty high chance of reoccurrence. And that can happen from my understanding when you're young and you have this strong maternal lineage like I do. Go through the four rounds of chemo and kept a pretty positive mindset the entire time. And I bring up the hysterectomy because I think it kind of grounded me. If there was kind of a silver lining in that cloud, it was that I knew that I could focus on joy and self-care. And I got really, really serious about that during that time because I did not want to feel like a victim. I didn't want to fall into a depression. And so by the time the cancer came, I had this muscle, like this joy and self-care muscle that was already fine-tuned and ready to go. And I know sometimes people don't like to use kind of battle analogies, but literally I was ready to fight. I thugged it out, thugged it out, strong, positive, I'm online, I'm building the brand at the same time. And then uh, my cousin, who's like my nephew, passes away, tragically, 21 years old. Mm. He gets trigger warning, electrocuted at work, and it just brought everybody to their knees, like Mm. everybody to their knees. And at the time, I talk about this also in a breast cancer episode on my podcast with Margot. At the time, I was still working part-time while going through treatment. I could not even, like, stop work while we were grieving him because I had a grant report that was due. We go to services. I'm writing the grant report all weekend. I go out to treatment, and I was trying to finish this f***ing grant report before the chemo, and I wouldn't be able to work for days. And that was the moment where I was like, I'm, I'm not doing this no more. I felt like I would have been like dishonoring my ancestors, dishonoring the God in me. If I continue to work in that same way, knowing that it was not serving me while fighting cancer, while dealing with my mom's cancer and while grieving the death of a very close loved one. I mean, a lot of people would have stopped before that like three hits before (laughs) that moment. And as you're saying what you're talking about, I'm like, girl, I can relate to all of what you're saying. Like I have to be like on the cliff before I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. And so how did that moment where you took a moment to assess your own mental health, your physical health, your well-being, how did that manifest later? And how does that affect your choices? 
I'm so happy you brought up that someone else would have been like, I'm tapping out because I think you and I have have been in these very high stakes environments, probably for a very, very long time. And so we are taught to normalize stress. We are taught to diminish our wellness and our self-care. We are taught that joy is not important, that time to ourselves, that vacationing, all these things are not important. What's most important is productivity. What's most important is achieving success in this very like post-industrial capitalist way in which it is defined here in the West. And so I thought I just had to keep working, that I could just work myself out of any problem that I had. Right? Yeah, that, that you are immune to the normal biological needs being met. Exactly. Like we convince ourselves as women, and I think I don't want to speak for the black community, but this is what I hear from my black patients, that they feel like they have to double down even harder, yep. work harder, and be bleeding out of their eyeballs to justify, like, hello, I need a day off, or I need to take a moment for myself. Exactly. And no one at the time professionally encouraged that for me. As a matter of fact, they were like who's going to do this conference, you know, and pressured me to delay treatment. And so what I have found, and we spoke about agency earlier, that if I don't put my stake in the ground and say, I am doing this for me and hold space for myself, I can't expect anyone else to do it. I mean, you teach people how to treat you, right? And if I would have known then that my priorities were not in alignment, I would have made very different choices. And so that brings me to today. If it don't serve me, I don't do it. But yesterday I laid in bed until 10 o'clock. And that was just the dad on that. <laughs> I love it. That's it. No explanation given. No explanation needed. It just happened. And it's because you're human and that's it. My body told me that I needed rest. And so, shocker. I listened and I laid in bed and I got up and I felt so much more rested and productive when I did. And so I became a solopreneur in December of 2020, which means that I combine equity consulting with creating content. I am across multiple platforms. I do brand collaborations. I'm on YouTube and I have found a way to monetize the things that I love. And I am so incredibly grateful for that. When you're doing all that you're doing, you're on YouTube, you're on Instagram, you were just on TV. I saw you flew out to yeah. California. I mean, <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> I mean, you're giving yourself, right? You're giving yourself, you're giving other people a window into your personhood. I mean, does that ever feel exhausting, tiring, like too much? Like, where do you draw that boundary? And what do you keep for yourself and how much time do you spend thinking about boundaries with your consumers who are consuming you? So I took my first week-long vacation dedicated off devices. I went to Lisbon, Portugal. I was there for a few days by myself. And then my mom came. And it reminded me, or pretty much taught me, because it was my first one, how important it is to just have those moments that are just for me. Because being a content creator means, as you said, your life is for consumption. And so realistically, whenever I pick up my phone and I'm engaging on social media, I'm working, which makes it very insidious because at times I don't realize how many hours that I'm putting in in a day, right? At least if you're going to an office, if you're going to do a thing, you know when it starts and when it stops. For me, things have become a lot more kind of like fluid. And so what I've started to do is give myself a lot more room for rest when I need it, understanding that I'm working harder. I also am making a lot more time for travel and trips and things that are just for me. I am at 40 now on the other side of a breakup, something I didn't think was going to happen of a long-term partnership. 
my love life is now for me and not for public consumption. And I don't think that's going to change ever, honestly. Certain family members and time with family, I'll share a bit, but I'm starting to understand that a lot more is honestly just for me. And I've had to develop a much thicker skin too. I really have. Social media is one thing. YouTube is another. I think it's where the unwell people go. Really? I'm not on YouTube that much. Twitter feels like there are a lot of unwell people. So I've been on Twitter quite a lot for the last two and a half years. I never was until February 2021 because I was doing quite a lot of advocacy work around COVID and COVID policies and children, mental health, adolescent mental health. The mental health challenges in the world are like on steroids on Twitter. Is it the same on YouTube? I'm happy you said that because I'm not as much on Twitter anymore. So I w- I'm going to have to give Twitter the trophy there. Yeah, I mean, Twitter is literally dying right now under Elon Musk's yeah. insane reign. Although maybe that's one big stunt itself. I don't really know. I, know, I, so I don't know. I mean, I'm like, who knows? But you said you had to develop a thick skin. Because I can imagine even though you are authentic and fabulous in every way in your public persona, there are going to be people who are just not nice and who want to tear you down. I have just now began to kind of see myself as a strong person because for a while I would kind of eschew that title because it can lead to the strong black woman stereotype, right? And so I've had to rename it and renorm it for myself and say, actually, my strength is in my vulnerability. My strength is in the fact that I will cry and I will tell someone that hurt my feelings, you know, no matter how juvenile it may sound. That's actually my strength. That is like the birthplace of confidence, too, is when you can be seen and, and also be loved. Mm, that's really special. Thank you. I have had to say to people, you know, number one, my block finger is strong AF, but also like I'll get off this platform. Oh, your block finger. <laughs> your block finger is strong AF. OK, I need a bumper sticker. That says that. <laughs> My block finger is strong AF. You will get blocked, honey. You don't own this platform. I don't have to give you anything. Back to whatever is not serving me has no space in my life. I don't have to give you a front row seat to my life if you don't know how to handle that responsibility. Bye. (laughs) You know what I mean? On YouTube, I've had to say to people, if the homophobic stuff continues, I will leave this platform. And here's the thing, Doc, that I thought was so interesting. I got hundreds and hundreds of comments. And what saddened me is that people said, don't leave if you leave, that person will win. Don't give them the privilege. And I thought to myself, I'm not in competition with them, so there's no way for them to win. I'm telling you that this is harmful to me. That's a full stop, period. I just won't do it anymore. And I've lost nothing. I have lost absolutely nothing because what I've gained is my peace at night. And so, yes, I've had to put up boundaries. I've had to block people. And I've had to be okay with seeing my life outside of any of these things because I was a whole healthy human before it. And I often say that you're getting a very small percentage of my life with all of these platforms. It's a highlight reel. I was the sh- long before number one, I knew it, but number two, before the internet do it. So I'll be the sh- after. <laughs> yeah, there was someone on Instagram. It's making me think yesterday. I did a podcast episode with this woman, Elise Lunin, who was Gwyneth Paltrow's right hand woman and kind of the brains behind the Goop empire Ooh. who left Goop. Okay. To then redefine what wellness and health really is and in a way that I really see and her message resonates so much with me. We talked about the intersection of spiritual, physical, and emotional health, with our lived experience sort of at the center of who we are and all those things intersecting and being the definition of health. 
this is a long way of saying when I put the social post up to highlight my interview with Elise, this woman wrote, shame on you, Dr. McBride, for spotlighting goop. You know, that is what's wrong with social media is like she obviously didn't read my post that it was about reframing. Yep. We were there literally to talk about how, <laughs> without naming names, exactly. yeah, how yeah, yeah. women are not served by so many elements of the wellness industry. Yeah. How we are nibbling around the edges of actual health when we tell people to put a candle on their bedside table and everything's going to be okay. Or sell them a bunch of hoo-ha pseudoscientific supplements. $7,000 worth of Right, right. That, that's not wellness. That's just like draining your bank account and giving you false promises when actually you may need to leave that awful spouse. You may need to put down alcohol. You may need to get some therapy for your sexual trauma. There's no supplement that Ms. Paltrow is going to sell you that's going to fix yeah. those things. So anyway, this woman wrote, shame on you, Dr. McBride. You know, shame is very... Painful, right? It's like what we try to avoid. It's what we spend our lives trying to not feel. It's like that perfect trigger. I'm evolved enough to know that that person didn't read the thing, didn't listen to the podcast, and has no idea what she's talking about. And so I'm sitting there in that moment where you're sort of like, all right, do I just tell her what a jerk she is, or do I block her, or do I not respond? Like, what's the right answer? And I don't know if there is a right answer. I decided to just respond to her and I said, please listen to the episode. Was that the right answer, though? Oh, that was so good. That was so good. But then I'm like, maybe I was too nice. Do you know what I mean? I mean, that's what gives her power, though, is the fact that it's reverbing in my mind. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I get it. But I just wanted to say, like, you're just missing the point. With like, yeah. a smiley face. But anyway, <laughs> the point is, like, I think that whether it's with a person on Instagram or it's with a family member or with your own work, it is work for us to make our needs known to other people and to ourselves and to then adhere to those rules and boundaries. I got that a whole lot, like the need for that, I should say, when I decided to quit my job because it was this idea of you're a lawyer. How could you not want to use that credential in this very prescriptive way? Although all the skills that I learned in law school, I use every single day. I'm using them now. You're using them right now. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But it's this idea of how we define success in this society. I didn't give anybody, at least in my very close life, a choice. Like I came to people and I said, here's what I'm doing. Here's when it's starting. Here's why. And my first goal was to transition out of my full-time policy job into luxury retail, which I did for two years and absolutely loved. Oh my God, I need to hear about that. It was so much fun, Doc. It was the best job I've ever had. I laughed so much at work. I had so much fun. I promise you, I did not know I could go to work and be myself. As a Black queer woman, I did not know that I could do that. And I walked in on the first day and I said, this feels like home. I didn't have to hide any part of myself. So that alone for me was life-changing and worth every investment. But when I told my family, I'm going to get this job at YSL, it starts on this day, I gave them no other choice but to cheer for me because they knew that I was resolute in my decision. I wasn't going to allow for negativity to permeate that. Sometimes I'll counsel patients who are in a difficult relationship or friends or myself. If you're going to say something to another person that you know is going to get a reaction you're not looking for, you preview the announcement, whether it's small or big, with here's what I need you to say when I'm about to tell you something. Do you know what I mean? You just you give them the yeah. answer. Yeah. And if they don't, that's fine. But at least you grease the wheels a little bit. Oh, I like that. You know, like say, I need you to be supportive of this decision. I am taking a vacation by myself and I'm leaving tomorrow. Mm hmm. 
you know, on the path to self-actualization, we get to make decisions for ourselves that we think are going to empower our lives. And if I get it wrong, first of all, right and wrong are completely subjective concepts, right? But if I get it wrong, then it's my job to deal with the consequences of Mm -hmm. that and trust that as my loved one, as a friend, whatever it is, that I have the resiliency to get past whatever hurdle or challenge that may come from it. But you know what also may happen? I may fly. And that's exactly what I have done. It doesn't mean that it's been without pain and challenges and moments that were tough. It just means I am the happiest I have been. I have earned the most of that is an important indicator. I have the most free time. I've traveled the most. I have lived a life that for the little small black girl in a country town, I could not have imagined. And it was because I bet on myself. I'm grateful. Tell me about clothes. Mm-hmm. And you. I want to have a whole podcast episode just talking about this with you. What about clothing and style and fashion gets your motor running? And who in the world of designers, high and low, do you like the most? It's art, hands down. And it's art in a way for me that feels the most accessible, that has always felt the most accessible. I didn't have the acting classes. I didn't have the dance classes and the things that I may have wanted to do when I was young. We just didn't have the time or the financial resources to do it. But what I always had was clothes style. I saw it modeled every day with my grandparents and the women in my neighborhood and at my church and in my community. And so I just stuck to it like white on rice, as we say in the South. It has been my ministry since I can remember. I was five years old and had a yellow two-piece that I love to wear to kindergarten. You had a yellow tube dress on no two piece oh just recently oh i did you did <laughs> look at how it came full it came circle. full circle i was just looking at that it's a sweater you just look so fat i think i even saved that instagram post <laughs> thank you so it came full circle i didn't even thought about that and i knew it was gonna be a good day if my grandma also allowed me to wear my hair in one ponytail which we thought was like very you know like adult and so if i had on my yellow two-piece and my hair in one ponytail oh i was slaying. unstoppable listen kindergarten had never seen nothing like me <laughs> Over the years, it has just evolved in so many ways. And I think working in luxury retail helped me to also understand that I didn't have to have as much to be as stylish, right? And so today, I think brands that I absolutely adore are Lueve. I'm having a moment with J.W. Anderson and Lueve in a real way. Kim Jones and Fendi, I think is fantastic. I am still a new Bottega fan, even though Daniel Lee is not there any longer. We'll always love Dior, especially handbags, shoes, the tool pieces, the berets, just classic, beautiful brand. It's also fun and joyful and celebratory of the female shape. Mm -hmm. Like I love silhouettes. I love architectural pieces. I love structure. Like I tend to like the row. Mm -hmm. I like like Kate. Jill Sander. Mm -hmm. Yep. I like Kate. Mm -hmm. And I am pretty much devoted solely to designer consignment yeah so ella rue and georgetown we love you ella Ella rue hey krista krista lives in my heart the real real and i also swap with friends my sister-in-law is a fashion guru up in new york oh i love it and she happens to have my same shoe size so i just believe in the reuse 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 recycle i also think you don't have to pay a fortune to look good because some of it is attitude and some of it is just fun and fearlessness yeah 
But look, I love YSL. I love all the designers you just mentioned. And it's just fun. And we can get those things in a way that works for our budget. I think I never knew that I could access these things. And then once I realized that I could, I was like, oh, I can also do it in a way that's budget friendly. You know, there's also Rent the Runway for special mm-hmm. occasions. I was on Access Hollywood last week. Yes, I was like, I'm were. not buying anything. Let me rent this jumpsuit real quick. <laughs> you know what I mean? I have a great relationship with a person at The Real Real. Oh, you do? mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I can sign things all the time. I also purchase. Before I purchase anything new, the first thing, my impulse is to figure out what is on the resale market for sure. I agree with that 100%. And also just to consume in a way that feels conscious and is sustainable. I think the most important thing we can do is wear our clothes, honestly. Oh, yeah. It's like the wedding china that I have in my, you know, attic. It's like... I finally just brought it out. First of all, who has big dinner parties anymore? It's been a pandemic. But secondly, why closet that joy? Mm-hmm. So we have been having cereal in the wedding china bowls. Oh, why I'm, not? I love this <laughs> analogy. I've been having my cereal in my prom dress. So yes. There you go. <laughs> There's that. I mean, I'm sure there are moments you don't dress up and look fabulous. There's of sure. course. That I hope is true because... I can't imagine you being as fabulous as you look all the time. That would not be (laughs) real. But every day, do you wake up and get dressed using your emotional sense of the day to guide? Are you you like a layout the night before kind of gal? Mm, So both. So I actually have date night tonight and I'm thinking about what I'm going to wear for the past three days. (laughs) So I always have something working in my mind. I'm planful in that way, but also I'm a big proponent of a capsule wardrobe. I don't know if you are too. Yes and no. Like my wardrobe is so, it's like there's too much stuff in it right now. So I'd like it to be more capsule We should do a declutter together. Yeah. That could be a lot of fun. Yeah. Because I have my capsule pieces now on a rack, like on the other side of my closet. So like today, I just threw what I'm wearing on from that rack. And so the idea is that everything is going to be interchangeable, which makes getting dressed so much more easy. I don't even think about it. I just I know I have pieces that I love. And when I'm purchasing them, I'm buying them knowing about like their interchangeability. So that's interesting. I think I do have a capsule. It's just not like separated off in my closet. Do you mean it's like you have the pants that you know are going to go with everything. You have the jeans that you can always fit into because they're like trousers you have the top that like is just your top who are you dressing for when you get dressed oh myself right answer (laughs) period right answer (laughs) yeah as if i expect you to be like for all the people who are trying to judge me and assess my (laughs) worth no it's for you well you know someone told me on youtube recently they said you know you love that gold handbag like taking a dig and someone else was like you she always has on the same clothes I do. That's why I bought them to wear them. What are you talking about? That is so ridiculous and so laughable. It is shameful as well because, again, it gets us away from true style. And for me, I just try to adorn myself on the outside to demonstrate how I feel on the inside. It's as simple as that. And so if that means wearing the same handbag from now to the next 10 years, that's what I'm going to do because that's why it was purchased to wear it and because I love it. No apologies. Just lean into it. Yeah. Tell me about your podcast with Margot and what your goal is with it. 
We started our podcast, oh, this idea probably about five years ago. And finally, we decided once I was on the other side of my breast cancer journey and Margot's considered a previvor. So she is BRCA positive. And so she had all of her surgeries and procedures prophylactically. And she decided to leave her job as a law professor. So here we are as two reformed attorneys going into this next chapter of life at what we call a big age, talking about self-care, wellness, and social justice. And so our goal I like to think is to inspire people to know that no matter your age, you can still decide how to live life on your terms. And I think also, most importantly, this idea that we're not one thing. Many of us are multi-hyphenates. We just don't lean into it and give ourselves the opportunity to see ourselves in that way. And then lastly, I think also we're giving voice to topics that I think need to be spoken about, especially in this day and age, like reproductive justice, access to all forms of health care. We're talking about abuse of power, accountability and sexual violence, domestic violence, right? We're talking about what it means to have cancer at a younger age, historically. We're talking about all these things, I think, that are real. Letters to Our Former Selves is coming up very soon. All these things that are real for us at a big age that I guess we're just supposed to like grit and bear and not actually hold space for. And we're saying, no, not only is our life beautiful in many ways, like we're reinventing ourselves and this new chapter is beginning, but also there are other people like us who we hope to inspire and encourage along the same journey. I think you are. I think you have no idea how I think you've kind of put your finger on the pulse of what women want and need. They want to be seen. They want to be heard. They want to know they're not alone. They want to be themselves. They don't want to apologize. They want their estrogen. They want to talk about sex like men do. Yes. They want to know that sex isn't just about a transaction. It is about pleasure. Mm -hmm. They want to know that their trauma doesn't define them, but it informs who they are in important ways and potentially powerful ways. All of these things need to be on the table. And those things all inform our health because health to me is not just about like your cholesterol and your blood pressure and your mammogram result. Of course, that is health. It's also about how you feel about yourself every day. It's how you treat your body. It's how you treat your mind. And it's about insight. That's so important. And I know there's all this research about like anti-cancer living, right? And how you can live post-cancer or preventatively if that's at all possible. And it's about including all of these other aspects of wellness into your everyday life. And I'm really, really focused on that. Now, if I could just put the McDonald's French fries down. (laughs) But there's benefits to McDonald's French fries. Oh, pray tell. That's joy. Amen. It's treat. So this is why I need to be here today. And I'm not going to tell someone that French fries from McDonald's are low in cholesterol. That would be a lie. Yeah. But if French fries give you joy, who am I to tell you not to have French fries? Here's one of my favorite expressions. It's someone, an economist, like an old white guy said this. And I've been saying this to patients like as a refrain for the last two weeks more than ever. There are no solutions in life. There are only trade-offs. There's no moment where we have won the game of life or health or cancer-free, cholesterol-free existence. Life is one big trade-off. And so when you have a French fry, you're saying yes to joy. You're saying F you to your cholesterol. (laughs) But that's your choice. As long as you're a consenting adult, 
It's about knowing the information and then making your own decisions and living with the consequences. Well, let's just talk about pleasure for a second. Talk about it. If your listeners and viewers don't tune into another episode of Justice, I have to say that sex and dating has been the one that has been my favorite thus far. Number one, because I make Margot so obviously uncomfortable. I love your relationship because you guys are, <laughs> you're clearly so close. You're just a great, you're like adorable. Thank you. So close and so different simultaneously, right? And so in that episode, I think what I hope I got across, much of it was me just being hyperbolic, like all these things. Where I'm not at, like swinging from the chandelier at sex clubs. It would be great. But, you know, right now I'm not. Well, I'm going to manifest not that. Not today. Not today. Not yet. What I hope people got away from that is what you just said, right, about that it's okay to seek pleasure and to do so in a real way. And I think for women, we've been socialized to believe that that is a dirty word, but it's also part of our health and our wellness and our well-being. Who doesn't want to have great sex? I mean, there may be some people, but for the most part, I think the majority of us are looking to have great sexual health and have great close intimate partnerships and relationships, even if it is with ourselves. I think we just got a whole space for that without judgment. Absolutely. Pleasure in medicine is just not really part of the conversation. Patients often don't go to the doctor because they don't want to be shamed for gaining weight or their blood sugar is high or like it's this personal failure. When actually it's not a personal failure to crave sugar or want to have cake. It's just that you have to know what the levers are in your health. It's your decision, how you want to live and how you want to eat and how you want to be. My job isn't to preach and tell you abstinence only if you're diabetic, no sugar if you're diabetic, no salt ever if you have high blood pressure, no estrogen if you've had breast cancer. That's a big one. The implicit sexism in the conversation about women's health and hormone health is really, really doing more harm than I could ever imagine. In other words, women are deprived of hormone replacement therapy because of this narrative in the public square that estrogen is inevitably going to cause breast cancer. Or not even inevitably. It's just, it's bad. Estrogen is bad. Okay. But just like I was saying earlier, there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. My job isn't to say you can never have estrogen. It's to tell you what the risks are, but what the benefits are too. Yeah, absolutely. And then you decide. Because who am I to say that you should not be allowed to have estrogen. If you have dry vaginal tissue, your libido is is in the basement, you're depressed, you're having hot flashes. I've been there. And you have in your family breast cancer. Like, Why am I the person to make the judgment that you should not have estrogen when the estrogen would help all of those things? Maybe not fully fix them, but they would certainly help. You are entitled to take on the risk of breast cancer yourself. That's not my job to make that decision for you. In other words, we need to put patients in the driver's seat with the doctor as the person who has information and data. And then I say, what are your goals and what are your wishes and how much risk are you willing to tolerate? Not my job to tell you how much risk to tolerate. Same thing with the French fries. Also, it's back to agency. Right. Like it's all about you being able to be in the driver's seat. I mean, we see this with money all the time. Right. Your broker tells you, here's what I would do. Here's all the information, the data. You decide what your risk tolerance is and how you want to invest your money. Health is 10 times as more important. For so long, doctors have we're an authority. Right. But that doesn't mean we're a moral authority. Mm. It doesn't mean that we're an authority on the person in front of us. It doesn't mean that I know what matters to you more than you know what matters to you. You may value French fries more than never having a French fry and shaving a month off your life. (laughs) That's your choice. (laughs) Do you mean? Because at the end, I'm going to want to know that I had the French fry. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, because not having a heart attack and living to your 105 is nice. But if you never had French fries, I mean, let's talk about what is worth living for. And that's a personal decision. So to your point about low libido, dry vaginal tissue, been there to the highest degree. And I talk about this on an episode of Justice that's going to be coming up very soon because it is something that I think can have so much shame for women. And we just have got to call that out, call a thing a thing so that we can get a lot clearer about what the trade-off is to use your word. And so for me, Yes, I was definitely told, and I'm still being counseled, all estrogen is bad. Third generation survivor, no estrogen, no estrogen, no estrogen. it may be wrong for you, and I don't know the contours of your family history and your tumor itself. I'm just saying that we need to not be so absolutist about the advice in general because we are depriving women some very important invisible quality of life elements. Well, that's what I was about to say, that if there is something, if you're not in my situation and, you know, everyone's situation is very unique, if there is something that you can do to enhance your quality of life, I vote for figuring that out for yourself because not being able to perform intimately, especially if you have a partner, for me was such a source of shame. It began to have mental health effects. And I thought that I was broken and I already have had that narrative for a very Mm. long time. And so I don't know that estrogen was the right thing, but at least being able to have the conversation with other people would have helped me to feel like I was normal during those days when it was really bad. I think it's about respecting people who have expertise for their expertise, but not for their moral authoritativeness. And understanding that we're all consumers, we're smarter than we think, we're smarter than we look. For sure. I mean, that's what drove me nuts about the whole COVID conversation is withholding important information from the general public because they wouldn't understand. So let's not give them nuance. Let's just tell them to do this. Mm. I don't even ascribe ill intent. I just think that people are smarter than they look. They're smarter than we give them credit for. And who am I as a doctor to like preach and lecture and assume that my values are your values? And if we don't have the information, how are we going to learn? I mean, knowledge is what makes you smarter. Right. And that's ultimately where trust is born is if you have knowledge and information and a guy who's like, hey, I don't know the answer. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to try to do the best I can. So thank you for being a guide to your listeners, your followers, and just the people in your life, because I think you know you're making a difference, but I'm guessing you're making an even bigger difference than you even know. And I think just being authentic and being you is a real gift. And I've heard that before, and I often wonder to myself, maybe this is me being authentic and genuine because I don't know that there is another option. And for many people, of course, there is. That's even better. And that is authenticity right there. If there's no other option, it would be work to be somebody else. Then that's the definition of authenticity. When there's ease being in your own body and your own mind, that's authenticity. And you're not going to be for everybody. Yeah, for sure. And I'm, I am A-OK with that. That's cool, too. <laughs> that's the same thing that I've had to be comfortable with. I was like, I'm not for everybody. I'm not everybody's cup of tea. Mm-hmm. And that's OK. If I was everybody's cup of tea, I would be compromising my own mm-hmm. values and authenticity. Well, that's confidence, too. And I think there's something to be said about us being in this season of life. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good season. And Tashara, thank you so much for joining me. I just want to go shopping with you. And I want you to come to my closet and help me figure out what the hell I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) No, you got it. Head to toe. You got it. Well, we'll do it again. Thanks. For sure. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you catch your podcasts. 
I'd be thrilled if you like this episode to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question, please drop us a line at info at lucymcbride.com. The views expressed on this show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice for individuals. That should be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at Podville Media in Washington, D.C.